This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. In middle school and high school, I wrestled. I don't know why, but I did. And if you know anything about wrestling, you know that during a match, whether you're winning or losing, there will be many times where you want to die. Your lips burn and your lungs scream for oxygen and every muscle in your body is shaking. And you think, please, please just let me die. And you know that's gonna happen and, and it doesn't matter how well it's going or how poorly it's going, it will happen. You will feel depleted. You will have no oxygen left. And you just know, going into that, if you don't have a strategy for when that happens, you will lose. You will be pinned. Your mind will freak out if you don't have a strategy. It sounds a lot like life, doesn't it? A little bit. I mean, all of us will be depleted. If we're, some of us are training for marathons, some of us just have kids. And sleep is, is far, far away. Some of us are going through hardship. Some of us are experiencing pain or loss or difficulty. We know that depletion is a normal part of life with God. We feel depleted. We feel at the end of ourselves. It will happen. And if we don't have a strategy of how we are going to reckon with that experience of being depleted, we will be pinned We need a strategy. And the Psalms are full of these things. And Psalm 63 is no different. As I said earlier, Psalm 63 is a psalm of confidence. At first, it seems like a song of lament, right? I mean, David says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If we were to stop there, you'd think he's about to lament. This is a psalm of lamenting, but it's not. It's actually a psalm of confidence. This psalm gets at the rhythm of life with God. 
Life with God includes longing and it includes delight and it includes confidence. But today, as we reflect on this psalm, I want us to particularly reflect on how David shows us the path or the bridge from longing to delight. And then, praise the Lord, when we, when we experience delight, how does delight go into future confidence? That wherever life will take us, wherever God takes us in life, that we can have confidence in him. How does this psalm teach us that that might happen? So first, I want to talk about the bridge from longing to delight is praise. David will show us that the way we go from experiencing longing to experiencing delight is praise. Let's, let's look at it. In the worship folder, the introduction to the psalm isn't in there. We normally don't put it in there. But if you look in your Bible, the beginning of the psalm says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So we know from the Old Testament, there are two times when David was in the wilderness of Judah being chased. The first time was when Saul was trying to kill him. And the second time is when his son Absalom overthrew him with a big coup and tried to take over the throne and pushed him out. So for various reasons, the main one being that at the end of the psalm, David refers to himself as the king. We think that this psalm is written by David when he's pushed out of Jerusalem by Absalom, his son. So imagine this. Here David is literally in the wilderness on the run. Absalom recruits people to help him overthrow his dad and pushes him off the throne. And he, that's David's situation. It's, he's in the wilderness, literally and figuratively. He's suffering. He's under pressure. He's longing. And, and listen to the language that David uses. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. When he says my soul and my flesh, what he's, what he's actually trying to get at is this longing for God's help, for peace, for shalom, for justice. This longing that I'm experiencing, it's so strong that I physically feel it. He feels it in his body. You know what that's like when you long for something so badly or if you miss someone so much that you physically hurt, that you physically feel the pain and tragedy or suffering or whatever it is. That's what David is trying to express. And before we move on into that, that thing of praise, like I mentioned, I do want to pause and stop here and talk for a minute about longing. I want to talk for a minute about longing. Longing is, it is a very visceral and intense experience. So much so that I think some of us may read this language and say, this is fancy, but I don't know if I speak like that. I don't know if this is my language. I don't know if I would talk like this. I, I feel like my soul is thirsty and my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Well, here's the good news. Is that one of the main functions of the Bible or the Psalms is to put words in your mouth. You ever experienced a hymn when you sing it? You think, wow, that hymn explains my experience better than I ever could have. And so then you sing them to yourself. And sometimes uh, us from up here, we won't know how to describe it. We're trying to, to teach or to say. So we'll read a song or we'll read lyrics from a hymn. 
You see, the point of the Psalms and the point of when we sing, it's not mainly expressive. It's not mainly expressing how you feel in that moment. It's mainly formative. You see, the Psalms are teaching us how we ought to feel. The Psalms and the songs and the hymns that we sing are training us. This is how you ought to feel. This is how you ought to speak. It's part of the way God has designed corporate worship, which is what he's talking about. And we'll get to that in a second. But what about longing? I think that we try to short circuit longing. I think we try to cut it off because we don't like it. Because we think, I, don't, I can't feel that. I don't want to experience longing. Now, there's lots of reasons I've thought of this week of why we might want to do that. But for the sake of time and clarity, I just want to share two that I thought of with you, okay? I think that we try to deflect the emotion of longing first by distracting ourselves. I think when we begin to feel anything like longing, we distract ourselves. Let me get at it like this. When was the last time that you were truly bored? I mean, really, really bored. A long time, I bet. You know why? Because you do exactly what I do. As soon as you're standing in line and there's one second of silence or you're waiting, what do you do? You reach in your pocket or purse and take out your phone and you look at it. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's, I don't know what you look at. I don't know what I look at, but we distract ourselves from boredom. We can't imagine thinking. We can't imagine reflecting on how we experience, how the day has gone so far. What we're anxious about or worried about that's coming up in our day. We just distract ourselves. And some of us do it with social media, but a lot of us just do it with email, right? That's what I do. It's like, how about I distract myself with work? If I feel like I'm depleted, if I feel like, ugh, I need renewed, I need something to pick me up right now, I'll just check my email and see if I can solve any problems. And maybe I, if I can solve some problems, then I can feel renewed. Then I can be important, but I don't want to feel longing. I don't want to feel desperate. And some of us, it's like, man, I, I feel depleted. What is that feeling? I don't know, but I don't like it. So maybe I should dream about the future and, 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 and organize my life and, and try to set new goals. And maybe if I accomplish those, then I won't feel this way. And those are all good things. But not if they're meant to short circuit longing. Because longing is meant to do something. It's meant to take us somewhere. Longing is in a normal part of life with God. Where we feel depleted, where we need renewed. And you'll notice the context is very important. David is in the wilderness. There are many emotions in the life with God that we experience when we're not in the wilderness. And those emotions are important. We need to experience those in life with God. But have you noticed that most of the time when we experience longing, it's in the wilderness? It's in difficulty, it's in trial, it's in suffering. And so no wonder we would want to distract ourselves. No wonder we would want to short circuit that experience. So I think one way we try to short circuit longing when we start to feel something like that is we deflect by distracting ourselves. Another thing I think we do is we confuse longing with doubt and doubt scares us. Now, not all doubt is bad. I mean, some doubt is needed and is good and it actually will help you in your life with God. It'll help me because it will uh, sober us from our hubris Right? We think we know everything. 
We think we're in control of everything. And sometimes we need to doubt our own ability. Sometimes we need to doubt our experience because we need other people to speak into our experience. Maybe we don't understand everything. Maybe our perspective isn't the right or best perspective. And so a little bit of self-doubt is very, very good and helpful in our life with God. But the doubt I think we're afraid of is the doubt that makes us feel like our faith is not good enough, that our faith is inferior. So we long for God, we miss him, and we're in suffering and tragedy, and we think, how come I don't feel close to God? And instead of leaning in that, we're, we short-circuit it because we're afraid that we'll, be, that we'll be found out, that we'll realize that our faith is not all we thought it to be. We're afraid that we're going to doubt. But look at verse 1. This is not the prayer of a doubting man. This is a prayer of a man who's experiencing longing. He misses God. He's not experiencing his presence. But it doesn't make him doubt his faith. It makes him lean in even harder. And why? How can he do that? Look at verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. See that? It looks very redundant in our Bibles. Oh God, you are my God. This second, you are my God, is a different word than the first one. And it's used for covenant language. What he's saying is, God, you have committed yourself to me. You are my God. You're not going anywhere. And because you told me you're my God, because for years and generations you have said, I am your God and you are my people. Not do well, do good, be good. Then I might be your God. No, he has proclaimed for generations, I am your God and you will be my people. So David, even in his longing, even in his feeling of separation from God in this tragedy, in this wilderness, he is relying on God's promise that I am your God. And so you see, we don't have to be afraid and longing if we don't experience God's closeness because we know God has us. And so we can feel safe in longing. Longing is a normal part of life with God. But obviously David doesn't want to stay there and I don't want us to stay at longing. So what is the bridge from longing to delight? It is praise. Look at verse two. This is what David does. He, he describes his longing and he doesn't try to short circuit it. He sits in it. He meditates on it. He reflects on it. He describes how it feels. But then in verse two, he says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I've been learning a lot about praise lately. And I'll be honest with you. I am not good at it. I don't know if I even understood it that well. And I'm learning. And so this week studying for this, I got to sit under lots of teachers, both listening and reading. And I see two really important parts of praising in this verse. The first part is David says, he looks upon you in the sanctuary. And that is corporate worship. You see, sometimes when we're in the wilderness and we feel depleted and we are suffering, we're hurting, we're longing. Sometimes we pull away from people. But what David is saying is that the best thing for you is public worship. The best thing for you is to come together and sing praises with God. Because honestly, there are some times when you need to sing among the people and have words put in your mouth by the songs you're singing and by the brothers and sisters next to you because you don't feel it. You don't know. You don't, it's hard for you to trust but you need to be among the body of Christ, the church in the sanctuary, David is saying. 
So praise happens privately, but it also happens publicly. And that's what David is speaking of here. And what does praise do? It starts by beholding the goodness of God. And what David means by beholding is he's enumerating all of the reasons why God is glory, why God is beautiful. When you tell someone you love them, do you not tell them why you love them? I haven't always done that. In fact, one of, the, one of my favorite things that Leah does in our marriage, and this started at the beginning, it used to really make me upset, is I would say, hey, I love you. And what am I expecting? I love you too. Or a kiss or a hug or something. And she oftentimes will smile and she'll say, why? And at first I thought, listen, I don't know. I just feel that way. I love you. And she would always smile and say, why? And then I realized whether this is what she was trying to do or not, she actually was helping me love her more because she was inviting me to praise her. There's nothing wrong with that. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms. And there's a chapter in there that's sort of a seminal work. And if you're going to read or think or talk about praising God or praise in general, someone's going to point you back to that chapter. And in that chapter, he talks about his journey of before he was a Christian, he used to think that God was arrogant, that God was needy, that God was egotistical. And the reason was because all throughout the Psalms, he's constantly saying, praise me, give me praise, sing praises. And he thought, what kind of God would need me to praise him all the time? And then he said, as he reflected more on it, he realized that actually When you praise someone, when you enumerate the reasons why you love them, it actually completes your joy. I mean, just think about it with a YouTube video or something simple like that. Just start there. If you see something hilarious or you see a new comedian or an amazing performance or something awesome on YouTube, what do you do? You share it. And what do you do if you're trying to share it and people are disinterested? You get mad. You're like, I'm trying to show you this. Hello, right here. You right here, watch this. Because you know you want them to share in your glory. You want them to enumerate all the reasons why that was such a beautiful masterpiece of a performance. It's no different when God invites us to praise him and we enumerate all the reasons why he's loved. We don't just say, I love you, God. We say, I love you because you're good. I love you because you are steadfast in your love towards me. I love you because you give of yourself to me. I love you because you are glorious, because you're infinite, because every cell in the universe stays alive because of your power. Those are the types of things we do when we say, I praise you. We don't just say, I love you. We call to mind all of the reasons why I love you. And it completes our praise. So in calling us to praise him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And what David is doing in this psalm is he's saying, the way I will change is by praising God. And that takes us to the next part of praise. It's not just enumerating all the reasons, but it's also this word that we call appraisal. What is an appraisal? Well, an appraisal is when you list all of the things of value about a work of art or a piece of antique furniture or a house, you list them all out and then you compare that value to something else. 
And when we're praising someone or praising God and we get wrapped up in that experience, we can't help but begin to compare that to other things. And that's exactly what David does in verse 3. After he goes into the sanctuary and beholds the power and glory of God, recalling all of the specific reasons why God is worthy of his love, he says in verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now, I was confused at this at first because the Psalms are filled with times where David or the psalmist praises God for saving his life. And he longs for God to save his life. But here, it's almost like he's saying, I don't care if I die. What's that all about? I think what it's all about is when David and us, when we are wrapped up in praise and adoration for God, all of the sudden we can't help. But when we see that beauty say, ultimately, compared to you, God, if, if I don't have your love, it doesn't matter what else I have. So in David's circumstance, he's saying, even if I get my throne back and Absalom is removed, if I don't have your love, I know that it won't matter. It won't matter to me. And so, in fact, if I have to choose between you and having my throne back, I want you. You're worth more. You're more valuable. The appraisal doesn't even match. And it's here where I really fall short of praise. Right? If, if I want to change, if you want to change, I don't think that we're going to change by confessing our sins. That's a part of it. That's why we do acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. But when I read the Bible, when I read this psalm, the way we go from longing to delight is by focusing on God. By praising God for who he is. If you want to be less greedy, if you want to be more patient, if you want to love your neighbor better, then focus on God. Adore God. Praise God. I don't know about you, but my prayers, I think the thinnest part is adoring God. I spend a decent amount of time confessing, but even religious people confess their sins. Why? Because confession is natural. It's normal. We confess our sins so that God won't punish us. Even religious people who confess their sins, anyone can, can ask God for things because we all need things. We all want things. But only a child adores God. Only a child can come to God and say, I want you for you. I don't want you for any other reason. And the only way I go from depleted to delight, from longing to delight is by focusing on you. And that eventually, of course, leads us to confession and to supplication. But the richness where David says in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. It is adoration. It's praise for God that satisfies him. And so that's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I want us to love God for God. I want us to praise God. I want us to spend more time enumerating all of the reasons why God is worthy of our love and our life and our commitment and why it's only him that's worthy of capturing our imagination and our hearts. That's what will change us. 
is adoring God. That is the bridge from longing to delight. We delight in God by praising him. And we praise him by enumerating, calling to mind all of the glorious things about him. And then we won't be able to help ourselves but say, in comparison, you are the only thing that's worthy. That is praise. And that's the bridge from longing to delight. Next, now that we're at delight, David understands that in this movement in the life of God, there will be a time in the future where we will be longing again. And so how will we find confidence in those times? How do we move from delight to confidence moving forward? The answer to that is grace. That's how. Where do I get that in this psalm? Look at verse seven with me. Right before verse seven, David is so anxious, he keeps waking up at night. And when he wakes up at night, he recalls how God has protected him. Look at this in verse seven. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. The shadow of your wings is always imagery for protection. And David is saying, you will protect me. There's nothing I can do to earn it, but you will protect me. You always have. You've always been my help. There's nothing I did to deserve that, but you've always been my help. And then verse eight, this is amazing to me. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This word clings, you could say sticks. You could say intertwines. Another way we talk about it biblically is you could say cleave. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul says you should not have sexual immorality, because don't you know when you're joined to God, you are one in body and spirit with him? It's the same word. This is a word for covenant marriage. He's saying, God, I have confidence because no matter what, we are one. I've left false gods. I have left anxiety. I have left control. I have left the need for power, the need for pleasure. And now I am yours. I cling to you. I cleave to you. You will not divorce me. It is you who's come and attached myself to you. You have super glued me to yourself. Nothing can separate us. That's what he's saying. Nothing can separate us. My soul, and the word for soul in the Bible doesn't mean something inside of you. It means you. It means you. It means all of you. It means your desires. It means your fears. It means your hopes. It means your life. It means everything. It's all clinging to God. God is in covenant relationship with us. And then the last place I see grace is here. Verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. The king. You see what he's doing here, right? You know that he's not in Jerusalem, remember? You know that he got pushed out by Absalom. So what is he doing here? He's inserting his identity that God has given him. He's reminding himself of who God has made him to be. Do you remember? David didn't do anything to make himself king. When the prophet came to Jesse and said, show me your sons, they didn't even ask him to come out. They said, do you have any more sons? 
And Jesse said, well, I got the scrawny one who's out with the sheep. You want me to bring him in? He's like, yeah, 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 I think so. And here he comes, some pretty boy. Long hair, plays instruments, sings songs. He's not a warrior. He's not a king. And God says, no, he is a king. I'm making him king. Do you think you're beautiful? Do you think I'm beautiful apart from God? No. We're enemies apart from God's love. But you know what God did? In Jesus, he came and he changed our identity. He made you a son. He made you an heir. You're a daughter. You're a son. You belong to him. And the way we move from delighting in God where we see, I want you. I, I wish I wanted you more than I do, but I want you. And, and I want you more than I, than I used to. And I want you more in the future. And how do I move from that delight into more confidence? I know that you have made me a son and you will not let me go. You have made me a daughter and you will not let me go. The only place of confidence in the Christian life is the fact that God in Jesus makes you a child. That's who you are. And there's no striving there. There's only confidence. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you that we were once your enemies, but you died for us and you, you transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And we are new and we are different and we are changed. Our identity is different and that's where our confidence lies, not in our performance, but in you, not in our record, but in Christ's record. So we pray after we sing the song of response and we go to your table, that you prepare our hearts that we don't feel any shame or guilt when we come and eat of this meal that you've given us. There's nothing we have done to earn it. We just receive it thankfully. In Jesus' name.